of various emotions, and today we're dealing with uh, the issue of anger. Uh, but before we start thinking about that, I want to read from Genesis chapter 4, and this is the first instance where we have where anger is demonstrated and the consequences of carrying through that anger. So Genesis chapter 4. Now we had these two brothers. Abel kept his flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. There you have it, the first, and I'll, I'll mention that briefly later on. But there we have someone who couldn't deal with his anger very well. And so we're talking, not thinking just about anger, but really about how we can tame our anger. And you see, all of us get angry. Some of us get angry more often than others. Some of us have a real problem with getting angry. Some of us don't really have a real problem with it, and it hardly ever happens. But what causes us to get angry? Well, we had this feelings wheel that Becky distributed to all the seats um, a couple of weeks ago, which had in, at the central theme, I'm just going to hold it up. I couldn't put it on a slide. You wouldn't be able to read it anyway, but it, it looked like that. And outside of that, from the center, you had some of the causes and things that, that create anger and what causes us to be angry. And amongst other things, I'll just list a few of them that we think about. We can get be frustrated. There'll be a situation that's highly frustrating us and then we come out and erupt in anger. We could have been humiliated. Someone has said something to us and we're totally humiliated. We could be very bitter about a situation. Or in today's market, and they're talking a lot about it on the news, we're very stressed extremely stressed about situations and, and all that's going on. And then something happens and we erupt in anger. And we can get very jealous. And there are other reasons. In the reading today, Cain was jealous. His brother was seen as better than him. And to make matters worse, his brother was the younger brother. Now, I'm in a situation, I've got an older brother and a younger brother. And I know how good it is to get one over the older brother. <laughs> but I also know how horrible it is for the younger one to get one over me. And God warned Cain about his jealousy and said, you've got to deal with this. Cain didn't. And he erupted in anger. And if you read on in the passage, which I didn't read, he suffered some quite serious consequences. And we have the first murder recorded in the Bible. Now, some people have the capacity to explode in anger 
and five minutes later they carry on as if nothing has happened. But the damage around them is done. They get it out of their system. Other people may explode in anger or not explode in anger and it festers away and it affects their mood for the rest of the day and goes on and on and just festers away. And it is almost always a negative emotion. And I say almost always because there is a place for righteous anger, but we've got to be very careful. And it comes with a health warning. Righteous anger, very careful to just excuse whatever we erupt in anger over and then just say it was righteous and therefore it was acceptable. It may be, but we have to be very careful about using that as an excuse. And when we act angrily, it is almost bad behavior. And there are consequences to that that we may or may not see. C.S. Lewis said this quote, and I'll put it up here so that you can read it. When we Christians behave badly or we fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. Okay, it'll be up there so that you can read it as, as I talk on. But I find that actually quite thought-provoking. Our behavior matters. Or as Solomon said in the book of Proverbs, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. And the thing about behavior is that, um, you see, I missed the baptismal service that went on in early October. And I asked someone else how the whole thing went, because I, I like to be there and, and, and listen to people's testimonies. And he said it went very well. But one of the observations that he made was that from the Iranian people who got baptized, one of the common themes through there was that they got interested in Christianity through the behavior of other Christians. Now, we need to think about that. So how, because we're talking about taming our anger, how do we tame our anger? What do we do? Well, there are all sorts of things that are on there, and you can do all the various things, and I'm not knocking them. They may work for you. They may not. Things like count to 10, take a deep breath, walk away, go sit in a quiet room, go on anger management courses. And we can talk about all those things about how to help tame your anger. But what I want to do is focus on two very basic Christian principles. And I will suggest to you at the end of this that if you're going to focus on these Christian principles, which are very basic and very familiar, that maybe that's something that if you go that way, it will go towards taming your anger. And the first thing I want to mention is love. Now, we Christians are very good at talking about love. It should come as no surprise because Christianity is built on love. God is love. So what is it that's there that's so special about it? I've put the two verses up there in 1 Corinthians, and I'll mention them in a minute. But as humans, we tend to be selfish. It's, it's something that's within us that we tend to be selfish. And to a certain extent, society accepts that and helps it on its way and, and really just confirms that a bit. I was struck um, yet again that after the autumn statement by, the, um, uh, by Jeremy Hunt, that so much of the news is taken of about what's in it for you. And that just sort of confirms a little bit of the selfishness. What is it that I can get out of this? And as they went to different people and, and their opinions of what he'd said and all the rest of it, a lot of it came out of what's in it for me. But love is selfless. And as people, we are prone to being selfish. 
but love is selfless. And when Paul wrote these words that are up there now, he was writing to a church who had lost their way in that they were very much concerned far more with what was showing as dramatic and wonderful and miraculous and all the rest of it. And in the opening few verses, he says, you can do all these wonderful dramatic things and miracles and all the rest of it, but if you haven't got love, it's worthless. And so he's bringing them right back to this very basic thing here. And here is, I mean, that, I've listed it there, but that is actually how it is written. Love is patient and it is kind. And different things on that list will stand out to you and be something that is acceptable to you or what makes more sense to you. But love is not easily angered. We're talking about taming our angry. But notice it doesn't say it is never angry, but it is not easily angered. And way back in the book of Exodus, Moses was on the Mount, Mount Sinai having the commandments written out on stone for him on the second time because the first time he smashed them in anger over various issues. But he's up there on the mountain and the Lord passes by and he proclaims himself like this. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Emphasis is on love. So much so. And that is the God who we follow. Now, as I get older, I find that getting grumpy is easier. <laughs> and I get pulled back by my wife at times to remind me she doesn't want to be married to a grumpy old man. And she's quite right, but it has shades of that comedy, One Foot in the Grave and Victor Meldrew and all the rest of it. And that's what it reminds me for a bit. But we have to work at these things and it, it's there all the time. I mean, I even found myself being impatient during the week. I haven't confessed that one to Julia, but anyway, that, that's another matter. That's all I want to say about love because we talk about it a lot and there is so much more. But I want to go on to one other principle which is built on love. And without love, it's not there. And that is grace. We don't talk a lot about grace, uh, an awful lot, or consider it. Um, but uh, many years ago, there was an international conference in Britain on comparative religions. I'm talking about back in the 1950s or 60s, and all these wonderful theological minds were there. And they had a debate on what belief, if any, was unique to Christianity and all the world religions. And they started out by eliminating some of the things um, that they thought maybe might be unique, but found that weren't. Things like incarnation, God becoming a man on earth and living on earth as a man, but he was God. It's not unique to Christianity. What about the resurrection? That again is not unique to Christianity. There are other religions that have things about resurrection within them. And the debate went on for a while, and then someone said, well, what about grace? And so they thought about grace. And after further discussion, they came to the conclusion that grace was something that was unique to Christianity. What is it? Look it up in the dictionary. You will not get a definitive answer. But all, a lot of you will be on your edges of your seat saying, it is, and it is, unmerited favor the unmerited favor 
of God. It is not an absolute definition, but boy, does it have a lot of power in it. And that is why I have that verse up there on there. It is by the unmerited favor or the unearned favor of God that you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. And we, as believers in Christ, have got this unmerited or this unearned gift of eternal life in heaven simply because we respond to the claim that Jesus accepted, the claim of Jesus, and we accept him as our Savior, believing that he died on the cross and he rose again, and by so doing, he enabled you and me and anybody who believes that to have life in heaven with God. So we've received this fantastic gift through grace. And God looks on us as perfect people because of what Jesus did. And the challenge to us is to reflect that to everybody else in our lives. Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 18 when he was answering a question about how many times should I forgive someone else? And the king, looking through his accounts and books, found that there was one of his servants who owed him a lot of money. And he summoned the servant to him and said, um, pay up or I'll throw you into jail. Quite how you're gonna pay up once you've been thrown into jail, I'm not sure, but that's not the purpose of the story. It was a large amount of money. The footnote in my Bible says that it was millions of pounds. So the servant pleaded for mercy. He was really quite distraught about it. And the king said, okay, I'm not going to give you time to pay it. I'm going to cancel the debt altogether. Don't even think about it. You don't need to repay it. Well, how do you think he felt? So what did he do? He went out and uh, bumped into a fellow servant of his who owed him about 50 pounds. And he grabbed him around the neck and throttled him and um, demanded payment immediately. And when the other servant said he couldn't pay and, and just give him a bit more time, this first servant wouldn't listen and had him thrown straight into jail. How do you think the king is going to now deal with that first servant who showed no mercy or grace? to his fellow servant. We, as Christians, have had an enormous debt cancelled, and we understand that to a certain extent. Not fully, but we do understand it. So shouldn't we be extending that to all around us? How do we extend grace or unmerited favour to all around us? Two things I want to mention. The first one is quite a straightforward one. I read an article uh, about two weeks ago about a survey done on shop workers, all shops, supermarkets, shops, all of the rest of it. And it was about the level of abuse that goes on to shop workers while they're going about their normal work. Over 30%, get this, in this country, over 30% of shop workers in this country suffer abuse every week. I, was, I think that's horrendous. So I went digging a bit further. I wanted to find out what about call centers because those people on the end of the phone when you've been waiting for over half an hour to get through to someone, what about them? I couldn't find figures, but my suspicion is it's a lot, lot higher. How do we treat them? Gordon Wilson was the victim of an IRA bomb at Enniskillen. 
And as he lay under the rubble awaiting rescue, his daughter was there with him, more seriously injured, holding her hand. She slipped away into unconsciousness. And whilst they were rescued, she died of her injuries and he never spoke to her again. And he was in hospital recovering. And when the journalists went to interview him about it and how he felt, this is what he said about the IRA. I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. And his comments were headlines around the world. But he went further than that because he went on to meet the leaders of the IRA and the loyalist paramilitaries, not just to say, change your mind, you're wrong, but to also try and understand what drove them and what made them do these things. And he was showing them in everything that he did, the unmerited favor. They didn't deserve any of that, but it shook them. And so that is, that is where he was with that. And it helps. And certainly forgiveness is at the very core of, of grace. It isn't everything. But I think if you were to write a biography of Gordon Wilson's life, I think you would find that he had been extending this grace, this unmerited favor to all around him for many, many years in all the little things of life, all the little areas. And when the big test came, he was able to extend that grace to those who least deserved it. So how do we do this? It's easy to show grace to our friends. It's easy to go and do favors for our friends. It's easy to forgive our friends because we know them. It's easy to do that. What about those who we don't know so well? Do you treat them differently? Do you ignore them? Do you just shrug your shoulders and not care? I mentioned the shop workers suffering abuse. How do you react when you are unnecessarily delayed at the supermarket till? I mean, I'm a great fan of these lovely little guns that you go and zap everything around, you pack your bag nicely and you come to the end and you zap the screen, you pay and you're out and you don't have to unpack onto, and you don't have to do any of that. It's so quick. How do you react when you zap and it says, uh, you're in for a check and you look around you and there's no one around, so you've got to wait and you wait and eventually someone comes and they say, oh, okay, just cover everything okay. Yeah, everything's fine, everything's fine. So they start doing a few zaps and then they come to something and say, oh, this one hasn't been zapped. I'm sorry, but we need to do a full trolley check. So now you get taken to one side and they chuck everything out and they zap everything and they chuck it back in, not as carefully as you packed it. How do you react to those people when they do that? because all they're doing is their job. What about if you're late for an appointment and you're driving along and you get stuck behind someone doing 33 and a half miles an hour in a 40 zone? Do you yell at them from behind the wheel? Do you hoot them or, you know, how do you react? How do you react to someone who disagrees with you on a particular theological or political point? How do you talk about it with them? How do you react when in a church meeting you're voting and you're in the minority and the vote is passed against what you think is right? Or you are in the majority 
and the person next to you has voted the other way. How do you talk about that? How do you show grace to people in those situations? These are the small things in life, but these are the important things in life. As I said earlier on at the beginning, people, those Iranians were saying that they were attracted to Christianity by the behavior of the Christians. We need to ensure that we can show grace in the minor things, and I've only spoken very briefly about it. There's a great big book written about it called What's So Amazing About Grace by a, an author called Philip Yancey. If you're interested, look it up or come and see me. But it, it, it really did transform my thinking an awful lot. It's a wonderful book. But let's remember how much grace God has extended to each one of us. And Paul encourages us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So love and grace are two principles. Think about them. Think on them. Consider them. And then when you look back, maybe you will just see that if you're concentrating on those and thanking God for those things, you will see that you've also been taming your anger. Thank you. How do I master my anger rather than allowing anger to master me? What steps can I take to grow in love and grace? How often do I thank God for his grace to me?